meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Communication. In this episode, we discuss communication and how meditation helps us better tune into not just what we say, but how we say it. This talk was recorded in 2014. Today we are joined by Susan Piver. Susan is an authorized meditation instructor in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. She's practiced meditation for over 15 years and teaches around the world. Here's Susan to take away the discussion. So our topic tonight is communication or speech. And it's my favorite topic, probably. And it's also a topic that I've been exploring myself pretty intently. And I don't have prepared remarks that are sort of based on things that I have said many times before. And sometimes if you're a teacher or you give talks, you know that there are talks that you give and you give them multiple times. And each time it's different. But... You basically have a sense of where, what you're going to say, and I would just want to tell you right now that that is not the case. <laughs> so we'll figure, but I didn't, like, not prepare, so don't worry. I'm not just going to start, <laughs> um, you know, blabbing. The point that, the main point that I want to make about the profound topic of communication is that it is not maybe 10% is about what you say and 90% is about the space between you and the other person and that space is alive and it is ever changing and that's why in my anecdotal observation you can have a story something that happened to you and you tell it to one person and it seems like an interesting story a meaningful story And you can tell the same story, same words, to a different person, and suddenly it seems like a stupid story, something foolish or weird. Why? You didn't change. The story didn't change. But the space between you and the other person changed. Because, like with any relationship, it's more than just a combination of you and me. You and me, you and I, make a third thing, which is an environment. And all the things that you could read about speech and study about speech and learn about speech are not about that environment. They are about the words that you use or tips for being a good listener. And those things are great. But as spiritual practitioners, as a Buddhist myself... We're trained to pay attention to the third thing, the space. To let our awareness expand beyond our personal story and our judgments about the person we're talking to, to take in a bigger 
scope. So as practitioners, as meditators, I think that we come into possession of the most potent asset when it comes to being a good communicator. So to riff on that just momentarily, a little bit, and I'm sure you've all had this experience, two people can stand up in front of the room, uh, the same room, you know, theoretically, and say the same thing in the same words, and one person will get heard and the other one won't. I'm sure you've had the experience of being at work, say, and coming up with an idea where people just go, meh. And then someone else says the same idea and people are like, yes! <laughs> or vice versa. Why? It's a rhetorical question. But think about why. Why? What makes a person heard? Because we can talk all we want, and we do. And we tweet, and we post, and we message, and there's constant communications coming from us and coming toward us. Constant, unending. That's not going to stop. And that's not going to get less. How would you get heard in that? It's just an important question. And I'm going to tell you my uh, theory and how being a meditator, a mindfulness practitioner, um, enables you to be heard. Because in my investigation, and, and my life is built around this, uh, the ability to speak as a writer and as a teacher and as a person. My whole gig in this life, my whole orientation is towards speech. And everything good that's ever come to me, professionally, creatively, has come through the act of speech, whether it's written or oral. And so it's my wheelhouse. And sometimes I'm good at it and sometimes I'm not, but it's what I'm engaged in every day pretty much. So anyway, in my observation, the um, thing that magnetizes attention slash enables you to be heard, the one who can do that is the one who is willing to let go of fixed mind. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. When we have something to say, whether it's to our partner or at work or to our kids or a neighbor or whatever it is, we want to walk into every conversation we have with a distinct sense of what we have to say and why we're right and what the, uh, and I don't mean that aggressively necessarily, we just want to feel confident in what we have to say and some sense of, well, the other person might say this, they might say that, they might say this, and in all those cases I will do this or that or the other thing and my intention is this and my goal is that and I hope their response will be this and none of that qualifies as an unfixed mind. And, and of course, we have to all be smart in our communications. You can't just show up at a business meeting and just open your mouth and see what comes out. I mean, I've been at meetings with people like that. <laughs> and it's not productive or fun. But in the act of speaking, no matter how prepared you are or aren't, when you open your mouth, 
when you let the words come out, are you able to cut your primary allegiance to your ideas, to your fixity of mind, and instead to offer what you have to say from a place of freedom without requiring the other person to respond in a particular way, but instead being willing and willing to field whatever that response is. The person who can do that, the person who can cut that fixity of mind, in my observation, is the one who can be heard. Because it, it brings a life force to the speech, a kind of vitality. And it animates what I would call your voice. And by your voice, I don't mean what your vocal cords produce necessarily, although that's part of it. This may sound trite, but I'm going to say it anyway. Each of you has an extraordinary song to sing through the employment of your voice. And I don't necessarily, I don't mean singing, but if you're a singer, that's great. But each of you has a completely unique and beautiful and crystal clear song within your speech that if you can relax will be sung and this is what I mean by that writers often talk about the quality of voice Do you, have, have you heard people you, oh she has a strong voice she has a playful voice she has a domineering voice she has a remote voice she has an intimate voice that kind of thing it is independent of the words that are used Although, you know, it's hard to write colloquially and also be formal, for example. But nonetheless, every writer has a voice. And it's the uniqueness of the voice that creates interest, often in readers. And some writers, everything they do is about voice. Like um, E.E. Cummings, for example, the poet. We don't know what he's saying exactly, but there's a particular voice, and that voice is the poetry. And there are other writers that are more, you know, what's the word, um, expository, that explain things. And that's a voice too. But that writing is not necessarily about voice. There are singers. Obviously, singers have voice, but if you listen to someone like Billie Holiday, her vocalization is all about the quality of the voice as opposed to someone like Ella Fitzgerald where also has a beautiful quality of voice but it's about the ability to vocalize powerfully and the instrument is subtle and profound and beautiful and amazing and powerful. Billie Holiday you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say it's a powerful voice but there's a quality to the voice that is unique and special. Does this make sense? So when I'm talking to you about communication, I'm really talking to you about that, about voice. And nothing, I, ha- I have nothing to say basically on how, what you should say. Um, although if you ask me my opinion, I'm sure I'll tell you, but I, it's not about that. It's about finding that voice. And that voice does not arise from your efforting. 
necessarily. As with everything profound and important about you and your knowing, it's something that arises when you relax. So it's not easy to find that voice. So I want to give you a couple of um, insights related to Buddhism that could maybe take the next step, like, okay, well, if I relax, I still get nervous. I think most of us, when we talked about our speaking just this evening, mentioned some kind of nervousness, which is, you know, normal. So say you relax, then what? So I just have a couple of thoughts, and then we can have a conversation Fascinatingly to myself and perhaps to you, in Buddhist thought, and I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but I'll tell you what I know anyway, reality arises in three forms, three bodies. Reality has three bodies that are inseparable from each other. And the first body is called the Dharmakaya, or truth body. And the Dharmakaya refers to the ground nature of reality, the source material from which nothing and no one is separate, the unified field, the ground nature. I know I already said that. And if anyone can explain to you what the Dharmakaya is, they're lying. (laughs) Because you have to step outside of it to explain it and Therefore, it's ineffable. It it can't be explained. And it's the truth body. The second body is called the Sambhogakaya, which interestingly means enjoyment body. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. And the third kaya, or body, is called the Nirmanakaya, which means manifestation body. It's like you are the Nirmanakaya expression of your particular corner of the Dharmakaya. You arise as a, in a particular form. A table looks a certain way. A tree has a certain whatever, height or breadth. So Nirmanakaya refers to the forms that arise in our world. Anything from you to a tree to a table and so on. So these three kayas are interconnected. And the reason I'm talking about them is because speech is said to be one of the things that connects the dharmakaya and the nirmanakaya, the truth body and the manifestation body. And it belongs to the enjoyment realm. Things that belong to the sambhogakaya include things like symbols, sounds, speech, of course, things that we can't quite touch or find, but that communicate to us. Breath belongs to the Sambhogakaya, things that connect the unified field and the things that arise from it. So I find that very interesting, that speech is part of the enjoyment body. And it, it further emphasizes to me this magical quality of voice, because it, it is magical. You open your mouth and sounds come out, 
and somebody gets something in their ear and there's a comprehension and how that happens I don't know but it's magical so speech is magical Um, and there are three qualities that you can bring to your speech that will keep you connected to this magical quality I believe and help you connect as strongly as possible to your particular voice and these three qualities are related to three other things we've got a lot of threes in in my talk tonight and those three things are related to the three main cycles of teaching in the Buddha Dharma and this will all make sense in a second it's said that the Buddha turned the wheel of Dharma three times gave three main cycles of teachings and the three cycles address the cycles that we all go through in our lives so they're even though they're very scholarly and profound they're also very intimate and real so the first cycle of teachings when the Buddha became enlightened people said how did you do that and he said well here's how and he gave the four noble truths and talked about how other people could become enlightened and the first thing that you have to do is basically get your act together and stop being fooled by samsara by the craziness of this world and commit so the first cycle of teachings the Hinayana teachings Hina means foundational vehicle are very much about discipline and renunciation and getting your personal act together because you can't walk the spiritual path easily if you are a murderer say or you know a drunk or can't figure out how to have any money at all. So those things prevent you from becoming enlightened, from just stepping onto the path. So these teachings are about getting your act together, as I say. The second cycle of teachings, the Mahayana, or greater vehicle, and it's not greater because better, it's greater because one way of thinking about it is it extends beyond you. It's not just you, it's greater than you. So when you have some personal stability in your life, and we've all had periods of more and less of this, something happens automatically to us because this is how we're built. And that something is that our hearts open to other people in a different way than when we were stuck in a more hellish situation. When you're in a kind of hellish situation, nobody appears as a discrete individual. Everybody appears as a potential device for your escape from hell or your further imprisonment. In other words, everybody seems to be someone who could harm you or help you. And there actually are more than that. And when you have a sense of sort of stability, you can see other people as more than just devices in your life. And they like that. They like that very much. So you're able to love, in other words. So the Mahayana teachings are very much about love, of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and making some connection to the truth of everything 
by seeing its empty nature. I don't know why that got thrown in there, but compassion is said as two forms, relative and absolute. The relative form is what we think of as being kind, and the absolute form is understanding how reality actually works. But that's a different talk. And then the third cycle of teachings, called the Vajrayana, or indestructible vehicle, are about what you can do when you have some stability in your life and you know how to love. And what you can then do is take every moment of your life as your spiritual path and a potential moment of complete liberation. So the Vajrayana teachings are about cutting through illusion on the spot and waking, using everything that happens in your whole day, in your whole life, as a means of enlightenment. This is a Vajrayana tradition, by the way, as are pretty much all Tibetan schools. So what does this have to do with speech? You could say that the first cycle of teachings emphasize the quality of precision. The second cycle of teachings emphasize the quality of openness. And the third cycle of teachings emphasize the quality of going beyond surface appearances, preconceived notions, into a space of mystery and magic, of non-fixity. So when it comes to speech, it's very interesting to think how you could apply this. And the first thing that I would suggest to you and to myself, I'm suggesting this constantly, in your speech, to be very precise. Doesn't mean you have to be short. And it doesn't even mean only ever tell the truth. It just means say what you actually mean. Use the words that are that make the most sense. Tell the truth, basically. Or at least know when you're not. That's also good. Don't make things up. And as important as all of that, don't talk when you don't know what to say. If we all just did that for five minutes a day, didn't talk when we didn't know what to say, pretty sure we'd have world peace within like 36 hours. It's a very powerful thing to not speak. So the first quality that I suggest, and start to pay attention. Don't, and don't, I would say don't just say, okay, now I'm going to be precise all the time. But just start to bring some awareness to your actual speech on a day-to-day basis. And just keep a tally. Oh, that was precise. Oh, that wasn't. Oh, I said something. I didn't really know what I was talking about. Or actually, no, here I said exactly what I meant. Just start noticing. It's very interesting. And if you even just try to go through... Tomorrow morning, without lying, you'll find that you can't. (laughs) I'll try it anyway and see. And, you know, not that anybody's malicious or going to try to trick people, but something that you're going to say, I pretty much promise you, by by noon tomorrow, is not going to be the truth. It's going to be fudging a little bit. Or I 
pretty sure that's true, so I'll say it. Just those kinds of things. I don't mean malicious lying. So even that is just so interesting to see how hard it is to not lie. The second quality, openness, is really hard because it means listening, but it means really listening. And in order to listen, you have to do one thing. And that, do you know what that is? I don't mean not talking besides that. You have to stop thinking about what you think, about what you're saying, or what the other person just said. My favorite definition, and this is not my definition, it was given by this amazing and basically completely unknown author named Catherine McCoon, who wrote my favorite book of the last decade, probably. It's called On Becoming an Alchemist. Highly recommended. (laughs) Really good book. She said, um, listening is when you stop thinking your thoughts and start thinking mine. And that is a perfect definition, super concise. You stop thinking your thoughts. Even now while I'm talking, you're thinking things, obviously. But basically, you're trying my thoughts on in your mind. And you're letting your own thoughts sort of go into abeyance for moments. And that's what listening is. And the reason it's so scary is because it's hard to stop thinking your thoughts. Because we think they're our lifeline to sanity, to stability, to understanding, to, com- to not being stupid or looking stupid. And so it's hard. It's hard, to stop. it's hard to do that. But just start practicing it. You know, you can practice it even with people on TV, <laughs> just when they're talking. Or practice it with people who love you. Just stop thinking what you're thinking and let their thoughts fill you entirely for a moment or an hour or a second, however long you can do it, and see what that's like. See, and then see what arises in you because then what your, your response is from being touched, literally. I mean, I mean, it's a visceral thing. When someone else's thoughts come into your mind, you feel them. You don't just think about them. And that's when a real dialogue can happen. And the third quality, and the last thing I want to say, and then we can have any kind of conversation, it's called beyond, going beyond. Beyond what? This is very hard, too. And the best word that I can think of to describe what it means to go beyond in speech is to enter every conversation without an agenda. Agendalessness. So, of course, when you're having a conversation with someone at work, you have an agenda. You have something to get done. You have to get it done. You have to steer the conversation. Great. Do that. When you're telling someone you love them or you want to, or you want to break up with them or you want to have tea with them or whatever it is, you have an agenda. You can't like just pretend you don't. But in the act of conversation, you can let that agenda go in order to listen. And very interesting things happen when you put down your agenda for any conversation, even if just for a moment. And it, can, it feels awkward. 
But your agendalessness is a gesture of power. Because only someone who's confident and powerful can let their agenda go to listen. The coward has to keep pushing their agenda and aggressively trying to stomp you with their agenda or mildly aggressively stomping. But to let go of your agenda is a gesture of power. And as such, it empowers others. Because real gestures of power always empower the other people too. They don't take that power from them. So when there's, there's a liturgy in our lineage, and I can't quote it exactly, maybe someone can help me, but it's from the letter of the Black Ashe and Chogyam Trungpa. Rinpoche said um, something like, when one warrior arises, he or she creates a society of warriors, a room full of warriors, a class full of warriors, a home full of warriors, whatever it might be. So speech, I'll just close by saying, is a warrior's weapon of gentleness and kindness and goodness. I was looking here because sometimes there's a a, a calligraphy brush on our shrines, and this shrine doesn't happen to have one, but it indicates speech, calligraphy, expressing something. And often it's on shrines in Shambhala tradition because it's thought to be the warrior's a warrior's weapon. So please use your speech to be strong and kind and brave. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say, apparently. (laughs) So does anybody have anything they would like to add? Any questions, comments? It would be so lovely to hear. Yeah. Did everybody hear that? Uh, what, what about when you're talking to a family member and you have, you know, I'm putting these words in your mouth, habitual patterns where you trigger each other and you can't stop, you sort of can't let go because they, you just have these ways of relating to each other that are difficult. And yeah, that that's the hard stuff. That's going right for the most difficult thing to do. So in those situations, you know, the best thing that I can suggest is silence is your friend. And if you can turn, even just for a moment, away from your... I've told you a million times not to say that to me, or every time you do that, it makes me feel this, and you know that, and why don't you trust me? Why don't you like me? Whatever it is that you're thinking, if you can sort of let that go just for a moment... And try and wonder, what is the other person thinking? What is their experience right now? What are they asking for? What are they, what are they doing? Not what are they doing to me, but what are they doing right now? It can sort of introduce a little gap. But be very patient with yourself and... You know, those things are so ingrained and so difficult. And even just your question, I think, is um, very compassionate. And that compassion will serve you.
And also just a little anecdote, which I think is related. I was at a party, uh, kind of like a, a social situation on Sunday afternoon. I don't know what happened, but my social skills, which I'm a very gregarious person normally, but my social skills just completely dried up and <laughs> And I found that I had, I was just thinking, and I thought about it because Gary, you talk about if I have nothing to say. And I just found that I didn't have anything to say to anyone there, many of whom I knew quite well. And I, like, I, I'm sure with some form of anxiety, I ended up just like leaving without saying goodbye. And, uh, <laughs> but it dawned on me, what if I could have just sat there and not said anything? I just allowed myself to not say anything. What if I could have thought to have done that in that situation? That might have been really helpful. Well, it would have been interesting. I'll try that. Yeah, you should. That would be very interesting. And what you say about um, silent retreat, I totally relate to. And it is very, really interesting that I've done silent retreats too, or retreats that have big silent pieces to them. And two things I notice. One is exactly what you noticed. When, I, when we were talking again, I was like, I was so embarrassed with, about everything I said. <laughs> And I, was, and I remember during the silence, I'd be like, what were all those things I used to say? Why did I say those things? Just, and the second thing I noticed was how intimate it was to be with others when you're silent. It's just extremely intimate, more intimate than talking. So there's something about a shared silence that is very intimate. So thank you all so much for coming. And are there any announcements or anything else I should? Okay, okay, have some cookies. Thank you.